Good morning again, church. We've been in a series in the book of 1 Peter called Hardships, Holiness, and Hope. That's really a, a summation of the Christian life. We live in a world where we will experience hardships, trials, struggles. We live in a world where Jesus has called us to follow him and pursue holiness, to become more and more like Christ. And how will we do that? How will we not give in to fear, to discouragement, to sin? It is only by the hope that we have, the living hope that we have in Jesus Christ who unites us by his grace. These last two weeks, we saw, we've seen how Peter was addressing Christians and how they interact in various relationships in society, whether how they relate to governing authorities, and in that time period, master-slave relationships. And now he turns to the relationship of marriage. And the passage begins with the word likewise, which shows us there's a connection between the call to submit here and the call to submit in these other relationships. And Peter is turning to the most intimate of relationships now as he turns to marriage. How marriage is the gospel on display. Last week's teaching on masters and servants was difficult to navigate, uh, but I just want to say publicly that Pastor Brady did a phenomenal job breaking that down for us, helping us navigate that. And you might think that now turning to the topic of marriage might be less controversial and easier to navigate. But then we hear these first words, wives be subject to your own husbands. And many of us, quite honestly, cringe when we hear that language. In fact, some people, maybe you're watching online, maybe you have friends and family, maybe you yourself, you hear that and you say, you know what, that just confirms my belief that Christianity is regressive, chauvinistic. And part of the problem is, admittedly, historically, passages like this have been terribly misused to justify the abuse and oppression of women and that is evil and wrong. But before you check out, let me just ask you to consider the possibility, just the possibility, that the reason this teaching, and maybe even all the New Testament teaching on marriage, the reason why this teaching might sound regressive to you is because you have been culturally conditioned to think so. Christianity depending on the culture that it's situated in, can look either radically liberal or radically conservative, depending on the culture. In some cultures, you hear the freedom that, new, that Christianity brings in such a conservative culture, and people are like, oh my goodness, that's radically liberal. And in other cultures, uh, you, you hear about the constraints that, that we're called to as Christians to give up our rights to serve, and they're like, oh my goodness, that's radically conservative. And that's the point. It's neither. Why? Because Christianity is rooted in timeless truth, and we would expect it to challenge every culture that it finds itself in. Because it didn't rise from human thinking, it comes from above. That's why it doesn't fit into any one culture's theology. You see, Christianity is true, and therefore it must be transcultural. This is still God's word, isn't it? We could easily skip the end of chapter 2, the beginning of chapter 3, and jump into the next section. But all scripture is breathed out by God, is it not? Which means 
there must be a proper interpretation of this text that affirms the dignity of men and women in marriage as they live out this covenant relationship, which is the most, that one of the most powerful displays of the gospel of the marriage between Christ and the church. This is not about picking and choosing what we obey. We obey because Jesus is Lord. We don't get line item veto power in the Christian faith as many of us would like. We need to trust that God knows what we need to hear as we live out our lives, all of us, in glad submission to him and his word. Let me just say a quick word to our single folks. This is not just a sermon if you're single that you're like, ah, I can skip it, I can ignore it. God-honoring, healthy marriages are just as important to married people as they are important to you. You see, healthy marriages are an important part of a flourishing society, especially the health of a covenant community like ours. If you're not married, you should be praying for those who are married to stay married and to put the gospel on display, which means you have a role to play in that. Okay, let's jump in. Lesson number one, as Peter addresses the wise first, honor your husband by willing submission. Peter starts by saying, be wise, be subject to your own husbands. Be subject means willingly submitting to your husband's leadership in marriage. Before I explain what I think that means, let me explain what it doesn't mean or what it's not saying. The Bible never teaches that all women are subject to all men. It never teaches that. It also never teaches that a wife is subject to all men, but rather to her own husband. It says it twice in this text, verse 1 and verse 5. Also, the Bible never restricts women from leading in the workplace, in government, in society. He's talking about the marriage relationship. Notice the call is for a wife to willingly submit. This is not a call for husbands to demand submission. Husbands, listen to me. If submission is not willingly offered, it cannot be resentfully demanded. If your wife does not willingly submit, you don't get to demand it. I don't get to demand it. So what does be subject mean? One way to help us is to understand that the same word is used in the New Testament to describe Jesus' own submission to God the Father. Did you know that? Think about it. Submission is rooted in the Trinity. Jesus is equal with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And yet he willingly submits to the Father's will and does the Father's will. That tells us that submission to authority is completely consistent with equality and honor and importance. Does Jesus have any less dignity or honor than the Father? Does Jesus have any less dignity or honor than the Father? No. So no matter how we think this text ought to be applied today, this command in no way implies that wives are inferior or have less dignity and honor than their husbands, any more than Jesus has less dignity than the Father. In fact, Peter affirms the exact opposite in verse 7 when he says wives are joint heirs of the grace of life. But let's be honest here. The reason this text makes some of us cringe is because historically, women have been subject to horrible abuses at the hands of men who have misused this text. So let me be clear. 
we denounce in the strongest terms any and all forms of abuse. Especially abuse against women that seeks its justification in the Bible. It is wrong and it is evil, and as Christians, we must stand in opposition to all forms of abuse. Period. If you are a wife in an abusive relationship, your husband is not acting like a husband, he's acting like a criminal. And you should leave that situation, call the authorities and get help. And if you need help, we as a church family, we as your leaders and elders, we will help get you the help you need. But in in healthy situations, in a non-abusive situation, if submission is rooted in the very character of God and is to be practiced in, in many ways by all of us in some form, then the question before us is, what does a wife's submission to her husband look like? The word subject here means literally willingly put, putting the needs of another above your own. Or my definition, voluntarily yielding in love. If you're like, where does that come from? How do you know that? Just look at Peter's own words. Let's let Peter explain what he means by that. In verse 2, he explains what submission looks like. He says, by your respectful and pure conduct. It means offering respect to your husband who may not always deserve it. Just like we would say spouses should love one another even when they don't always deserve to be loved, Peter is calling for a level of respect and honor even when a spouse doesn't always deserve that. Remember this entire teaching in this section of 1 Peter is how to relate to those in authority. And that principle is rooted back in verse 17 of chapter 2 where he says, we're all free. We're all free. We're free. We are free to give up our rights. To commit to serving one another out of reverence for Christ. God is calling wives to make a conscious choice. Use your freedom to serve your husband by treating them with respect and honor. Why? The purpose given here is so that even those wives who are married to non-Christians might be able to influence their husbands for the gospel. And that brings us to the next lesson. Demonstrate the truth of the gospel by how you live. In Asia Minor, where Peter was writing to those Christians at the time, many Christian women would have been married to unbelieving husbands. And Peter says, don't use your freedom to break free from that marriage. No, he says, use your freedom to serve out of love and respect. Or as verse 13 says, for the Lord's sake. Submit or serve for the Lord's sake. Why? Because a godly wife can play a crucial role in the life of an unbelieving husband who will see the impact of the gospel in her life and by God's grace may ask her for the hope that lies within her. We have a number of church members who are married to non-Christians. And I want those of you who are here, those who are watching, to know we see you and we love you. Some of you have reached out to us as leaders and, and mentioned that, that it, it just feels really hard to live in that situation. And most of us honestly can't even imagine the challenges of navigating such differing worldviews within a marriage. And I just want to say to those of you who are in that situation, we love you, we see you, and we are committed to you. You are not forgotten. 
God sees your quiet and faithful devotion. And that may be the, the most powerful evidence for the gospel in your husband's life or your wife's life. Whether you are married to a believer or not, your godly conduct should reflect the gospel and how you serve one another. Lesson three, focus on internal beauty over external beauty. In verses three to six, what I think Peter is doing is actually giving us a portrait of biblical womanhood. I say womanhood because it's evident that what Peter says in these verses goes beyond just the qualities of a wife. He is painting broad and beautiful strokes of a godly woman that he then specifically applies to marriage. So I think these principles apply to all women. Biblical womanhood, I think what Peter's saying in verse 3 and 4, focuses on internal beauty over external beauty. Look what he says. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. On the surface, it may sound like Peter is saying, women, you can't braid your hair or wear jewelry. And sadly, this verse has been used to justify such legalistic rules in certain Christian subcircles. But that can't be what Peter is saying, because if you take each part literally, then he must be saying, quote, don't let your adorning be external, don't let, let, let the braiding of hair or the wearing of clothes. My point exactly. <laughs> Peter is not clearly obeying, is clearly not forbidding the wearing of clothes, which means he's saying, don't let your external beauty be your main focus or priority. Instead, he says, prioritize and focus on cultivating inner beauty. Back in this first century Roman world, what a woman wore and how she did her hair was the outward symbol of her status in society. It showed how much honor she had. Pastor Brady talks about those honor and shame culture and what level of honor you have. If you ever watched Downton Abbey, anyone ever watched that? I'm sorry. <laughs> Just kidding. If you've ever watched that or any show like that, you know that uh, in Victorian England, I think that's what that time period is called, whatever that time period is called, what the women wore and what men wore and how they did their hair was very clearly a, a way to differentiate themselves from other classes in society. It was very similar in the time period that Peter is writing. And what Peter is saying is radically countercultural because he's saying, listen, don't let the culture define your sense of honor. Don't seek to find your value or your identity in how you look or how attractive you are to others. That is radically countercultural for his day, and I believe it's still applicable today, isn't it? Our culture's obsession with external appearance is a crushing burden, especially on women. The sense of never looking good enough, never being beautiful enough, never measuring up. The irony that I see in our, today is that our culture seeks to liberate women from oppressive constructs, and yet it actually leads women feeling more like uh, like they must look a certain way or act a certain way in order to be beautiful, accepted, or successful, and that by definition is oppressive. The Bible is meant to lead women out of that kind of oppression and free them from the obsession of having to measure up to our culture's ever-changing standard of beauty and success. 
True beauty, Peter says, God says, is cultivating a heart that is increasingly reflecting the beauty of Christ himself. Do you believe that? Do you believe that is what beauty is? A heart that increasingly reflects the beauty of Christ. I know what the world says, and sadly, I know what men have often prioritized in terms of external beauty. But I want to urge all women to see and believe there is an adorning of inner beauty that is imperishable. It cannot fade. It doesn't wear out. Unlike external beauty for all of us which will fade as our bodies age, internal beauty can grow more and more into our old age. My good friend Mike Saul, who went to be with the Lord a few months ago, his wife would tell me all the time, and she said just recently again, how he would tell her almost every day how beautiful she is. He would say, Kathy, you're so beautiful. And she would say, why do you say that? Every t- all the time. And he says, because my call is to love you like Christ loves the church. And so I, you are beautiful. After decades of marriage, you are still beautiful. I love that. Peter, Peter describes inner beauty. He says what it, what it is. He says it's, a, it's a, having a gentle and quiet spirit. Gentle means humble as opposed to harsh. Quiet has a sense of tranquility or inner peace. It means someone has a calming presence rather than stirring up strife. I hope you see being gentle and quiet doesn't mean you have to be introverted. You can be extroverted, you can be passionate, you can be funny, you can be enthusiastic and still have a gentle and quiet spirit. So here's what I think Peter's saying. I think he's saying, ladies, there's a level of freedom here. You can wear a dress if you want. You can wear a pantsuit if you want. You can wear jeans if you want. You can wear a fluffy sweater if you want. Wear your hair up or down. It doesn't matter, but live with the unquestioning conviction that a heart that is gentle and quiet, a heart that's growing in Christ-likeness, is stunningly beautiful in God's sight. Or to use Peter's language, such inner beauty is very precious in God's sight. He uses the word precious which means something that has incredible value. Any of you here have an heirloom that's been passed down to you? Something about a parent or grandparent that you find great value in? That, that to you, maybe you could get some money from it, but, but you don't want to sell. Why? Because it has honor and you treat it with care. You admire it. You delight in it. and It's priceless to you. That's the idea of precious. It has value, great value. And and Peter's saying, women of God, you are very precious in God's sight. You are infinitely valued to him. You are his beloved daughters. When God looks at you, he is delighted to have you as his bride. Last Saturday, I did a wedding. And uh, it was a a COVID wedding, so there's like 10 people in the room, a lot of people watching online. But I got to be here and stand with a groom, a few groomsmen and bridesmaids. You know, the bridesmaids come down the aisle, the beautiful music's playing. And I love doing weddings because ever since I, I got married, and I got to see my own wife, kind of doors open, she appears, and I haven't seen her since I don't know when, and you see her ready to be my wife. And I got all broken up and I was crying like a baby at my wedding. And I thought, okay, that's, that's over, right? No, every single wedding I am a part of, when I see that bride come down, I start crying. 
I'm like, it's not even my wife. What's going on here? It's, and I tell the groom every time, I say, listen, man, that moment you are going to remember probably the rest of your life. Soak it in. Not because she's externally beautiful, but because in that moment, there she is, ready to be his bride. She has prepared herself. She's giving herself fully to him. Listen, God is ready to give himself fully to you. And when you stand there, God himself looks at you and he is overjoyed to have you as his bride. You see, the more you are convinced of that, the more you will pursue and cultivate internal imperishable beauty. To the men and husbands, let me just say, what are we showing women that we value? External or internal beauty? Are we teaching our sons and daughters that this kind of beauty, inner beauty, is true beauty? Lesson number four. Put your hope in God and his promises. Peter says, Biblical womanhood hopes in God, verse 5. This is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. A Christian woman does not put her hope in her husband or in getting a husband or in her looks. That's not what keeps her going, Peter says. She puts her hope in God. She finds her confidence in the promises of God. How do you strengthen a good marriage? How do you endure a difficult marriage? How do you stay devoted to Christ when you're not married? You put your hope in God. A Christian woman and man doesn't allow difficult circumstances to, de- to define their mood or their life. She fights to reorient her heart to the greatness and goodness of God who has rescued her from the grip of sin and made her his beloved daughter. And she finds strength in the promise that the Heavenly Father who rescued her and made her his own is the same one who will walk with her through all the ups and downs of life. She puts her hope in God and his promises. Not only that, Peter takes it a step further. He says, such women fear God and live fearlessly. Sarah, verse 6, obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. A Christian woman is is not just someone who cultivates inner beauty and hopes in God, it's someone who is fearless. A woman who follows Jesus is someone who looks at the things that, that Peter says are truly frightening and is able to overcome those fears. Don't tell me that the Bible makes femininity to be out, out to be weak and mushy. It defines femininity as being fearless in the face of real fears. I don't know about you, but the women in my life have modeled this for me in profound ways. My mom and dad got their visas to immigrate to America from Egypt, and they got on a plane when my mom was eight months pregnant with my oldest brother. Eight months pregnant. You know what most women are doing when they're eight months pregnant? Nothing, hopefully. Just enduring. She gave birth, my mom gave birth to a child two weeks later in a country and a city and a hospital she had never been in her life. No family, no health insurance, no permanent home. I'm not saying it was easy, and I know she broke down many times, but she feared God, she faced her fears, and by God's grace she lived fearlessly. My wife has given birth to three children and lost two more to miscarriages. 
She has dealt with serious health challenges and multiple surgeries since having children. She has walked side by side with me in pastoral ministry and seen firsthand the pain that sin and suffering can have on church members. She has been there with me at weddings and many, many funerals, hospital rooms, and everywhere in between. And yet every day she gets up before everyone else in our family and gets alone with God and His Word to find her value in Him. She has had seasons of unimaginable sorrow and fear. And yet she has shown me what it means to look at her trials and not fear anything that is frightening. You see, the deeper your hope in God, the greater your ability to fight fear and anxiety in life. Or as John Piper put it, quote, the daughters of Sarah fight the anxiety that rises in their hearts. They wage war on fear and they defeat it with the hope and the promises of God. This is the portrait of Christian womanhood and of wives that Peter is beautifully portraying for us. And I hope you see the beauty in it. Peter then turns in verse 7 to the husband and teaches us to honor our wives as precious and appreciate them as an equal partner. Unlike the previous teaching in government and in master-servant relationships, Peter never addresses the one in authority. He only focuses on the one under authority. And yet, yet within the marriage, he chooses to speak to husbands directly. That should tell us something. There's a difference here. In fact, he says, likewise. Likewise, wives. Likewise, husbands. In other words, there's a similarity in how wives and husbands are to live with one another. And that similarity is this. Use your freedom to serve one another. Use your freedom to serve one another. The command to husbands is to live with your wife in an understanding way. It literally says live with her according to knowledge. Husbands, the call is to know your wife. To get to know her desires and her goals and her dreams and her fears. To get to know her strengths and her weaknesses. To get to know her physically and emotionally and intellectually and spiritually. A Christian husband is called to relinquish any sense of demanding his own way in marriage and instead is called to be considerate and sensitive and serving. And so I say to husbands, make every effort to understand your wife's needs so you can meet those needs. Peter says, honor her as the weaker vessel. His point here is, generally speaking, men have greater physical strength. Generally speaking. And our temptation because of that is to think that we can use our strength to sinfully control our wives. Peter says, no. A Christian husband will not seek to sinfully lead out of sheer force, but will show honor. A godly husband will lift up his wife with servant leadership, humility, and sacrifice. Husbands, bottom line is, unless we are, unless you and I can say, like Paul says in Ephesians 5, unless we are loving our wives in the very same way as Christ loved the church, 
By giving yourself up for her, that, then if, unless we can admit, yep, we're doing that perfectly, that means we still have work to do. We still have growth to pursue. In Peter's day, husbands had a higher status than wives. And so Peter's teaching is actually radically countercultural. He says, you must view your wife as God views her, as a joint heir with you to the grace of life. Women didn't inherit, and Peter's saying, yes, they do. In God's economy, a daughter and a, and, a, and, a, and a son inherit. My daughters and my sons are joint heirs in their inheritance of Christ. Inheritance to the grace of life. Husbands, do you treat your wife as an equal partner? Peter's elevating the status of wives here, reminding husbands of their equal dignity and worth. That even in society, if they don't have that value and dignity in the home, he says, husbands, you are on equal footing. There's no difference in value. You're both made in the image of God. You're both saved by the blood of Christ. And then Peter ends with this warning to husbands, so that your prayers may not be hindered. What? I thought we were talking about a marriage here, God. He doesn't give that warning to wives, but for husbands, this is a sobering truth. How I relate to my wife is directly related to how I relate to God. I cannot treat my wife poorly and then expect God to answer my requests. Because when I'm not treating my wife with dignity and honor that she deserves, the truth is I'm more likely going to be living more selfishly and I'm going to be praying more selfishly. And God says, I don't think so, buddy. Don't think that how you treat my daughter won't have any impact on how I relate to you. You know what's amazing about this passage? Even as Peter calls husbands, to, wives to submit, husbands to live in an understanding way, it's actually the wife that emerges as the Christ figure. Did you know that? What do I mean by that? If you read this passage, it's the wife that is described as gentle and quiet. It's the wife as the one who has the power and the ability and the influence to turn her husband's heart to Christ, to do something that changes a person's life eternally. You, you know who else is described as gentle and quiet? Jesus. Matthew 11 the same exact language. He says, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Learn from me, because I am gentle and lowly in heart. The way of submission, the internal beauty, the hoping in God, the living fearlessly, that's the image of Jesus Christ, and that's the way of Christ. It's Jesus who gave up his rights as sovereign king to become our servant. It's Jesus who was mistreated and rejected by the very people he came to save. It's Jesus who, who, who faced such injustice that he went to a cross and died to pay the penalty for our sin. Listen, Jesus died to death. You and I should have died. And he rose from the dead victorious. Why? So that all of us, including husbands and wives, might come to him and find forgiveness and healing for our souls so that we could experience unconditional acceptance and love. And by per turning from sin and receiving Jesus as Savior by, by grace alone as a gift, we receive the gift of life, the grace of life, the inheritance of knowing Christ. We get a living hope that cannot be put to shame.
And now, in Christ, Christian, we can use our freedom to submit, to serve. Marriages can put the gospel on display by showing the beautiful relationship between Christ and His bride, the church, and the covenant bond that they made together, one that Christ says He will never break. And all of us can put the gospel on display as we live out humble, respectful conduct. And by God's grace, we hope that others would watch and see and ask us for the hope that lies within us. And we might tell them that it is Christ in us, the hope of glory. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I admit we need, I need you in my own marriage. I admit that your standard, what you call husbands and wives to, is a high calling and a high standard. And, and the, the risk in teaching it as you have given it to us is that we feel like failures. We feel the sense that we don't measure up. And some of us might might give up and, and just say, forget it, I can't do it. Others of us might find great pride in thinking that we are living up to what you've called us to. God, I pray that each of us might be humbled by this calling and yet find great assurance that in Christ, you have given us everything we need for life and for godliness. Lord, where we have failed, may we find that your grace is greater than our sin. Where we are serving and loving, may we find that we are doing it as unto the Lord, for the Lord's sake. And may we find that our church might be filled with those who are married and those who are single, living together in harmony, bearing witness to the gospel of grace, showing the power of the gospel, encouraging one another, enduring with one another, that the world might see and be bewildered as to why we might live the way we do and ask us and find there is great joy in living out our faith because you have given us value. You have spoken your value over us, our identity over us, that we are the children of God and that is what we are. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.